You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. It's Jean Chatsky. And if you're a regular Her Money listener, and I hope everybody is, then you know that one of my favorite parts of the show is answering your questions, which is why I'm so excited to do a special episode devoted just to your questions. We're calling it the mailbag episode. And since we receive so many of those questions, we figured we would try to tackle a few different topics one by one. So we're going to start with students. Student debt, then we'll answer questions on credit cards, and finally we'll take your retirement questions. Kelly Hultgren is in the studio with me. Hey, Kelly. Hi, Jean. I'm so excited for this episode. Yeah, I'm excited to do this too. And it's great that we're starting with student debt because what we know about this year's grads is that they walked off campus with an average of thirty-seven thousand dollars in student debt. That's over one point three trillion in total, according to MarketWatch's National Student Loan Debt Clock, which you can go to and depressingly see the number climb about $2,700 every single second. That just makes my stomach hurt. It's astonishing. But let's start with some good news for future student loan borrowers and parents. Interest rates are going down. So for any federal student loans issued after July 1st of 2016, they'll be roughly a half a percentage point cheaper than they were last year. So more specifically, we've got undergrad student loans, whether they're subsidized or unsubsidized, at an interest rate of 3.76%, down from 429 graduate student loans at 5.31% and parent plus loans at a point higher than that. So that's all really good news because these lower rates could save you as much as three, four hundred dollars. It's a start over the life of your loan. But let's talk about other ways to save. What sort of questions are people asking? All right. Our first question on student debt has to do with how to consider student debt alongside other types of debt. At Care Supac on Twitter asked, student loans are considered cheap money. We're paying more than required on ours. Should we pay them off before buying a home? And I should note that she has cheap in quotation marks. Right. And and cheap is definitely something that you would put in quotation marks because cheap is relative, right? right? Interest rates are low historically. And student loan interest, because it's tax deductible, especially in those early years after repayment when you've got a lot of interest on the loan, is a cheaper form of debt than, say, credit card debt. And the return that you get by doing other things with your money, like putting it into a retirement account or paying off a higher interest rate credit card debt, is so above and beyond the return that you get from paying off a student loan that my advice to people is usually pay it off on the schedule that you're given as long as you can handle it and then go about the rest of your life. Because what we've seen in the research is that if you let trying to prepay these student loans bog you down, you're not going to get where you want to go 
with the rest of your life. And that's particularly true with the early years of retirement saving, because that's when you have the big opportunity for your money to compound and grow. And even if you're not putting away all that much, it's an opportunity that you don't want to lose. But that wasn't her question. Her question was, (laughs) should she pay them off before buying a house? And I would say, not necessarily. Not necessarily. If you are making good progress on your student loans and the interest rate is fairly reasonable and buying a house is something that you want to do, I think that's an okay thing to put your money toward, knowing that you can't necessarily count on that house to appreciate in value, but that paying down a mortgage is like building up another savings account. I think we're going to have a lot of priorities-related questions, and that's what I hear often or we hear often about is prioritizing their lives with this debt, which is new for this generation. Absolutely. And just to answer it in a very general sense, priorities go interest rate first, return on your money first. And the best way to think about this is that the return on your money that you get from paying off a debt is equal to the interest rate. So you pay off a credit card at 14.9%, that is a guaranteed 14.9% return on your money, which is difficult to beat in any other way or almost any other way, except when you're getting a match on your 401k dollars. So that's why I'm such a stickler about (laughs) not letting those matching 401k dollars slide. Money on the table. All right. What else we got? Our next question is from Kelsey on Facebook. Kelsey is in the final process of closing on an apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and she has just been accepted into her dream graduate school program, which will start part-time this fall. Her company pays half of her tuition costs, but she'll still be responsible for about $15,000 over the next couple of years. She writes, with my new mortgage and maintenance for her place, totaling $2,000 a month, I am stretched fairly thin as it is. What do you recommend in terms of financing grad school? Should I take out student loans in the hopes that when I come out of school, and have to start paying it back, I'll be making more money and won't be a strap for cash? Or should I contribute less to my 401k, I'm saving 13%, and invest less in mutual funds, I'm investing 400 a month, to pay for school as I go? She has no other outstanding debt. Which is great, and congratulations on being accepted into that program. For the reasons that we just discussed, I wouldn't contribute less to your 401k, but 13% is a really nice savings rate, particularly for someone so young. I'd let that other $400 slide and pay that towards your education so that you could borrow less. And look at how you're spending. And if there are any other ways to minimize the borrowing, I would go for it. But it sounds like you're making a pretty good living now. Chances are you wouldn't be going to get this additional degree unless you hope that it could boost your earning power when you came out. I would pay for it on the back end. It sounds like she's doing really well. It sounds like she's doing amazingly well. She's doing all the right things. Exactly. Congratulations, Kelsey, and thanks for asking. Similarly, we have another priorities question from Rachel. She's a 25-year-old who just graduated with her master's and $50,000 in student loans. They have different interest amounts, but the average is 5.5%. She says, each month after making my minimum payment, full matching 401k contribution amount, and a $458 Roth IRA contribution to equal the $5,500 for the year, she has an extra $600. Her question, what is the best thing for me to do with that money? Invest it, prepay my student loans, or add it to my savings for a house? 
Again, it comes down to priorities. In this case, because she's checking off so many of the boxes, and I don't know when she wants to buy that house, I'd probably prepay the student loan, or I'd stash it in a Roth IRA where it could grow for retirement but could also be used for a down payment on a house when that comes along. So there's a side note. She says, I plan on going back to school in the next two years for my PhD, where my loans will go back into deferment, and I plan to keep paying at least the interest. Does that affect anything? Oh, yeah. If she's planning on borrowing more, I would use the money to get rid of whatever debt she's got. Because what we see is that student loan debt just becomes kind of exponential, right? Mm -hmm. People, a certain, if you can limit your borrowing to the amount that you are earning when you come out of school, you're in pretty good shape. But the moment you start adding graduate school to that, it's really, really difficult to do unless you're going to be a lawyer at a top firm making close to $200,000 your first year out, which is really a tough ticket to write. In that case, We want her to try to make a dent in those student loans before she goes back to school. Okay, those are all fabulous questions, but let's move on to our next topic, credit card debt. Um, We have reported on the podcast that U.S. credit card debt is on track to hit a trillion dollars this year. And that nears the record high that it hit back in 2008. What we're also seeing is that People are not only taking out more credit cards, they're carrying more debt on those individual credit cards. In other words, people are spending, and I'm all for having a credit card. If you use it right, grab those miles, take a nice vacation, pay it off every month. But when you start revolving a balance, it gets really expensive. So let's hear what people have to say. Yes, we receive a ton of questions related to credit cards, their credit, how to check it. So our first question comes from Rebecca on Facebook. She received an email from her credit card company inviting her to apply for a higher revolving credit limit. She uses and pays this card off every month and has excellent credit, and her current limit is 19500 She's wondering, is there a benefit to raising the limit, and does it have an impact on my credit score? We hope to refinance from a 30-year to a 15-year mortgage in the next 6 to 12 months. So the first thing I'd do is check your credit score, because if your credit score is already great, and great is 760 and above, and you can check your credit score for free at SavvyMoney.com or CreditKarma.com, if your credit score is already great, there's no credit score-related reason to do this. However, if you feel like your credit score needs work, asking for a bigger limit can actually help you. This is her primary credit card, right? She didn't specify, but sounds like it. This is the one. If this is her primary credit card, she may be spending more than 30% of her credit limit on that card every single month and then just paying it off. 30% of a $19,000 credit limit is $6,000. If she's spending more than $6,000 by the end of the month, It's not helping her as far as her credit utilization goes. Credit utilization represents about a third of your credit score, and it's a look at how much of your available credit you're actually using. It's best for your score if you're not using any more than 30%, even if you pay that whole balance off at one time. And so if she's getting close to that limit, then I would say go ahead and take the additional capacity in the credit line. Just don't use it. Mm, That makes sense. All right. 
What else? Leanne on Facebook is... I feel like Jed Bartlett from the West Wing. Oh, he said, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Leanne on Facebook is wondering, which source would you recommend for safely checking our credit rating? We own our home, no mortgage and cars, etc., no debt. But we remember you recommending to check it regularly for safety. Yes, you definitely want to check your credit regularly for safety. And when I say regularly, I mean three times a year. And I'm not talking about your score. Your score really doesn't have to do with safety. You need to check the underlying data on which the score is based, and that's your credit report. You get your credit report for free from annualcreditreport.com. Each person is eligible for one free report per year from each of the credit bureaus, Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. And so my advice is just to pull them on a rotating basis. Pull one every four months, and you want to go through it and make sure that all of the information on that report actually belongs to you. A lot of credit reports have mistakes. Very few of those mistakes are the kind that would actually sabotage your credit score, but they can be a nuisance if it comes time to apply for a mortgage or a car loan and there's erroneous information on your report. So if you find anything that doesn't make sense to you, that doesn't fit, go ahead and pull the other two reports right away and then deal directly with those credit bureaus that have the incorrect information. They all have buttons on their websites where you can just send them a note, say this is wrong, and then they've got 30 days to get back to you. Okay, so you can dispute it, but they do get that 30-day grace period to get back to you? They get 30 days. Sometimes it takes them a little bit longer. <laughs> you got to make sure that you stay on it and, and just get the information removed from your report. But like I said, you know, most of the time, the information is not going to be disastrous to your credit. But the reason that we want people to do this is because identity theft is a huge problem. And it's not a huge problem when it comes to somebody using your credit card number to buy something fraudulently. Hopefully, the credit card companies will catch that. They'll shut it down right away. But even if they don't, you are not liable for those purchases. Where it becomes a big problem is if somebody uses your information to take out credit in your name or to apply for a job in your name or to apply for your tax refund, as we saw so many times this year. If that starts to happen, life becomes really, really complicated and you need to take steps to shut that down. But one way to know that it's happening to you is be vigilant about looking at your own credit report. When it comes to score, how often should one check their score, though? I I, I probably check it as often as I do my weight, which is sadly maybe once a year when I go to the doctor. I thought you were going someplace else. Once a year is fine. <laughs> if if you're going to apply for a mortgage or a car loan and you want to make sure that you're going to qualify for the best rates, then you want to check it a little bit more frequently. But credit scores don't move very fast. If you do all the right things, pay your bills on time, keep your utilization in the right place, don't apply for new cards as you're walking through the mall. If you do all of those things correctly 
and you do them consistently for a couple of years, your credit score should be just fine. But if you're trying to boost it, it may take that year or two years in order to get your credit score where you want to be. And checking it like you check a pot of water that is coming to a boil Mm -hmm. more frequently does not help. It doesn't hurt. doesn't hurt. No, I mean, when you check, and it, a lot of people believe that if they check their own credit, it has a negative impact on their score because we know when mm. you're shopping for credit and merchants are checking your credit or creditors are checking your credit, that does have a derogatory effect on your score. Not a big one, but it does have a small impact on your score. But you checking your own does nothing. Is that because it could be educational? Yeah, it's just because it's the way the law is written, that you checking your own score is allowable. You can check it as much as you want. Nice. Okay. And Bill reached out on behalf of him and his wife. He writes, my wife and I are both retired. Over the years, we have opened several credit cards due to incentives at the time of opening them, extra discounts, points, etc. All of these accounts have zero balances. Should we close all of the accounts and just keep one open? And FYI, our house will be paid off in less than six months. Well, way to go, Bill. That's great. Um, look, I've done the same thing. I've, I've opened the last card I opened was because it gave me a hundred thousand frequent flyer miles. I mean, who would not have opened that card? That was a great deal. I have never seen an incentive like that, but over time, these cards can add up. So I would say if there are any with annual fees on them, Get rid of those first because they're actually costing you something. And then go through a process of trimming. Get rid of a card every six months or so until you have it down to the one or two that you actually want to keep. Okay. Now on to someone who is carrying some debt. We have an email from Jennifer. She writes, I'm drowning in $30,000 of credit card debt. This has been an ongoing issue for several years, and I just can't get a handle on it. I've been looking at credit counseling services and DMPs, but I don't know how to figure out if the company is legit. My husband wants to take out a home equity loan to pay them off. What should I do? So first of all, we should tell everybody a DMP is a debt management program, and that's the program that credit counseling services put you on. The way that a debt management program works, your balances are all rolled together. The interest rate is typically lowered to 6%. Any penalties are waived away. And then once a month, you write a check to the credit counselor who pays all your bills. So it's it's kind of consolidation, but if you go through a debt management program, it typically takes three to five years to get rid of all the debt, and for a lot of people, that's too long. They don't stick with it, and it does cost a little something, a few bucks a month, $10, $20 a month just to stay on it. So that's something that you should know before you go through credit counseling or enter a DMP. I think you should actually talk to a credit counselor in this case. Just to decide if a debt management program is the right thing for you to do. The nice thing about the credit counselors that are members of the National Federation for Credit Counseling, which is nfcc.org or debtadvice.org, they have two different website addresses, is that these folks will sit down with you for an hour and go through a process, an intake process, where they tell you whether this is the right thing for you or not, and you get a lot of really valuable information at the same time. So that would be my recommendation. Okay. So don't take out the home equity loan to pay them off? Wait. Wait. Go through the process of credit counseling entry and look at all of your alternatives. The problem with the home equity loan, and I've seen this time and time again, 
is that people sometimes take out the home equity loan, consolidate the credit cards at a lower interest rate, which makes so much financial sense in the short term. But in the long term, they then go out and charge those credit cards right back up again. That can be a disaster because then you've got the extra debt on your home and you've got credit card debt. So only if you know that you're not going to do that would I say go down that road. Sure. And if people are looking for more information on making these sorts of life transitions, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is not only focused on, on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives, but If you go to fidelity.com slash it's time, you'll find more conversations like this one, but you'll also find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you are reinventing or getting married or getting divorced or starting a new career. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. Okay, so let's move on and take some questions on retirement. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that if they want to send questions for our next mailbag, whether it's a regular episode or one like this, the way to do it is to tweet me at Jean Chatsky on Facebook or at jeanchatsky.com. What do we have? Our first few questions on retirement are from Twitter. Susan Harris Bruner tweeted you asking, been watching your advice for a while. Want your opinion on purchasing annuities for someone nearing retirement? So, Susan, I think that that is a terrific question. I like the idea of using annuities as a way of covering your fixed costs in retirement. But I like a particular kind of annuity, a very simple, immediate or deferred annuity where you essentially just take a sum of money and you use it to purchase a paycheck that either kicks in immediately or deferred down the road a piece. Right now, interest rates are low, and because you are just entering retirement, you're pretty young. And annuity payouts are based on a number of factors, but including those two things, how long you have to live, which in your case is a lot, and where interest rates are, which right now is not very high. So I'd probably ladder annuities like you would a bond portfolio. You want to annuitize a small chunk right at retirement? Okay. But then I would probably wait and do another chunk five, ten years down the road or even several as you need it. The other thing that annuities are not going to give you, at least the type of annuities that I'm recommending, are growth. And you still need growth in your portfolio when you get to retirement because retirement is going to last a long time. So you wouldn't want to annuitize everything, but if you want to annuitize enough to cover your fixed costs while allowing the rest of your money to grow, that can be a good strategy. The last thing I want to say about this is that retirement, because it's such a big change, because it's such a big inflection point, is a really, really good time to sit down with a financial advisor, even if you've never seen one before. So put that on your to-do list as well. Great. Our next question is an email from Juanita on IRAs and taxes. You've talked about the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA and taxes. I don't understand what you mean about the tax differences. So here's the difference between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. With a traditional IRA, you put money in and you get a tax deduction at the time that you make that contribution. The money then grows tax deferred 
And when you pull the money out at retirement, you pay income taxes on whatever you pull out at your current rate. With a Roth, you put in money on which you've already paid taxes. The money then just grows tax-free forever. When you pull it out, you don't have to pay taxes on it. But another benefit of this account is that you don't have to pull it out. You can actually pass it on to your kids or your other heirs, which is really beneficial for people who believe that they will not need this money even in their own retirement. Now, granted, they are few and far between, but if you're one of them, the Roth IRA also has a couple of other flexible benefits that we should just talk about, even though they're not necessarily tax-related. You can pull money out of a Roth in order to buy your first home or to pay for education. And you can pull your principal, although not your earnings, out at any point after you've had the account for five years because you've already paid taxes on it. So if you're looking for flexibility in your account, you want to go Roth. Now, One thing that many people have started to do is just try to split the difference. Put some money in a traditional IRA, put some money in a Roth, and know that you've got your tax bases covered. Is that age-specific there? When you say that's a trend, is that a trend that I should be following? The splitting? (sighs) For millennials, we hear that Roth is the better option for us. And this is the first time I've heard of the idea of splitting into a traditional and a Roth. It's more of a strategy for people that are slightly older than you. I would say, you know, people in their 40s. What you want to look at when you make the Roth or traditional decision is what is my tax bracket going to be down the road? If it is going to be higher than it is right now, then pay the taxes now and go Roth. And that's why it's it's advised for younger people. If you think your tax bracket is going to be lower down the road because, for example, you're at the height of your earning power, then you're more likely to go traditional. But there are some people who believe that tax rates are just going up Mm. or tax rates are just going down. There are not a lot of people who believe that, quite (laughs) frankly. But there are a lot of people who believe the tax rates are just going up. And if you're one of those people, no matter what age you are, it makes some sense to put money into a Roth if you can. Thank you. Sure. And then Stephanie sent you a question on LinkedIn. This is our first question on LinkedIn, so I want to throw it out there that that is a medium that we do look at as well. We do look at it, and I'm a LinkedIn influencer. You are. And also, you're on Instagram, and we look for comments on there as well. Okay. Yes. We do money rules on Instagram every Monday. We do money. Money rule Monday. Hashtag money rule Monday. Stephanie writes, hi, Jean. Love your podcast. Here is my question. I'm 29 years old and I have a 401k through my work. I currently contribute up to the match and then opened up a Roth with Fidelity. The thing is, I don't understand how my work 401k account is being managed and my HR director doesn't seem to know either. I access my account through paychecks and I'm currently at an 11% return on my investments. What I'm really concerned about are the fees. How do I find the fees that I'm being charged? What fees are normal? Okay. What fees should I keep? look out for help. So if your HR provider can't give you this information, you want to go straight to the source. And the source in this case is paychecks. So pick up the phone, call paychecks. You should have an account number that you can access and they will give you all of this information. Fees are at this point, open book. 
Anybody can find out the fees on their 401ks, and it's an important thing to keep in mind. One of the reasons that people choose to go ahead and open a Roth on their own after they've maxed out the match in their 401k is because they don't either like the options in their work-based plan, like the fees in their work-based plan, or feel like they don't have enough information about their work-based plan. Now, you're doing quite well, but the markets are doing quite well. So make sure that you're comparing your return after fees to the overall return of whatever sort of investments you've got your money in. So if you've got your money in, let's say, an index fund that matches the S&P 500, you want to look at your return after all the fees and you want to compare that to what the same account would have done in that Roth IRA of yours. And that way you'll know where to put the next dollar. You're never going to beat the return that you get from those matching dollars, or if you do, it's going to be an anomaly. So make sure that you continue to put in what you have to in order to capture that match. But I think that the way that you're going about it, particularly with this lack of transparency, sounds like it makes a lot of sense to me. Excellent. And then our final question is from Diane, who reached out on Facebook, asking, I am 57 years old and I'm taking my retirement package after 30 years. The package is lump sum payment of $120,000 before taxes. And I'm asking what you think I should do with the money. I have no mortgage, no loans, a good 401k, a good pension. I plan to work part time and volunteer. I'm married and my husband is still working as a firefighter. The kids are grown, financially independent, and their college educations are paid for. What should she do with the money? Oh, my goodness, Diane. If you don't know what to do with the money, don't do anything with the (laughs) money right now. And this is, by the way, the same thing that I would say to somebody who got a big inheritance or won the lottery. There will come a time in your life when there is something that you want to do with this money. What I don't want to see you do is just, uh, I'll I'll do this. It's not really on the top of my list, but I'll go to Bolivia or I'll spend time getting my yoga certification, even <laughs> though that's not really anything that I've ever thought about before. Or I'm going to get a wildly expensive pedigree dog or, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is not... Sure, you could use that money and you could do so many things, but until you know what you really want to do, don't do anything. Just put it somewhere, either if you think you're not going to use it for a long time, put it somewhere where it can grow. If you think you might be using it in the shorter term, put it somewhere where it'll stay a little bit safer. I'll go to Bolivia with you, Diane. Okay, there you go. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kelly. This was fun. So much fun. Thanks for having me in. Oh, absolutely. I want to thank all of our listeners for sending us questions. Keep them coming. Please share the show with your friends, with your sisters, with your mothers, with your colleagues. We're getting great reviews, but we'd love to see more of them. As always, our thanks go to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through P. And we'll talk soon.